Hebrews chapter 2. Today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and pray that we would receive it with much thanksgiving today. It's for your name we pray. Amen. I always love to learn about uh, new financial apps and services online, and often those kinds of apps and websites and, and banks and Ponzi schemes promise really quick returns. So they promise if you just invest a little bit of money, then you'll, you'll basically be Elon Musk next year. And so I, I saw a new app this week, and I saw an ad for it, and I was like, okay, I'll bite. What do I, what do I have to lose? So I go, and I, I read about this thing, and I'm like, well, you know what? This sounds too good to be true. They're promising like 6% interest and like fractional investments on real estate and it's, it's great. And I'm like, well, man, hot dog. Maybe I should just put my whole net worth into this thing. Uh, like all 45 cents of it. And uh, so I keep learning. I keep investigating because I'm not just going to throw all 45 cents at the same time. And uh, so I read a couple of reviews of this website and there's one very troubling fact that comes up about this app. They don't have any kind of insurance. And so all of the money that I'm putting in there, like who knows what Nigerian prince is going to make out with it next year. Um, There was no insurance. There was no guarantee. If that website went up in smokes tomorrow, there'd be no guarantee that I would ever see my money again, let alone my return. And so I ran from that opportunity because when it comes to investments, while everything is a little bit of a risk, we want some degree of certainty. And we don't just approach our money that way. We really approach all of life that way. We want certainty about our future. Some of you are considering getting married in the future, and you want some degree of certainty that it's going to work out all right, that you're not going to hate your spouse five seconds into marriage. Some of you are thinking about switching jobs or switching careers, and you spend a lot of time thinking and praying about it throughout the interview process because you don't want to make that decision uh, randomly and quickly. You want to make it carefully. And and you want to consider because you want some degree of certainty. God knows this about you, your desire for certainty in your future. And that's why Christ came and gave himself, not just so that you can have more positive thinking about your future, not just so that you can have better odds in the future, But Christ gave himself to actually secure a better future for you. In our sin, we had all earned a debt of sin that we could never pay off. And so we were destined to be sent to collections for all of eternity. Christ came, paid our debt with his own life on the cross, dying in our place, rising victoriously from the dead, bringing everyone who would ever trust in him to life with him. 
So that if you look to Christ, he will save you. And that, what, what that means is a sure and certain future guaranteed to you. Not because you've earned it, but because Jesus has. So the main idea I want you to take home today is that Jesus has secured a better future for you than anything else can. So don't let go of him. We'll see this main idea from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The book of Hebrews could be summarized with one simple sentence. Jesus is better than anything, so don't let go of him. And the primary reason the letter to the Hebrews was originally written was because Christians from a Jewish background were having a hard time holding on under the weight of persecution. Their families were abandoning them. Their employers were firing them. They did not have a good future to look forward to, apparently, with when what they saw with their eyes suggested that. And what the author of the Hebrews is going to do in chapter 2 is he's going to promise them, no, Christ has given you a better future, so don't let go of him. The suffering and the persecution that you're enduring now will never compare to the weight of glory that Christ has for you. But he's also going to do something else. He's not just going to make promises. He's also going to offer warnings. Because if Christ has secured this wonderful future for you, we need to be warned about the cost that will come if we forsake him, if we abandon him. So friends, today, if following Christ is a grind, if saying no to sin is difficult, if dragging yourself here this morning was a challenge, the message of Hebrews to you today is look to the future rewards of Christ and know that it is worth it. The author of Hebrews is going to point out two facts about the message of Jesus to us today. First, the message of Jesus is necessary. And second, the message of Jesus is trustworthy. So first, the message of Jesus is necessary. We must trust in Christ and we must continue to trust in Christ because if we don't believe and if we don't persevere in that belief, there will be a serious punishment. We will be held accountable for our response to God. So he begins, Therefore, in light of everything we've read so far in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 1, that Christ, the God who created all things, stepped into creation and gave himself for our sins, risen again, seated on a throne at the right hand of God, ruling over every angel and authority and principality, in light of all of that greatness about who Jesus is, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lest we drift away from it. Hold on to the message of Jesus. Why? Because if you don't, you'll drift away. The image of drifting away is like a boat, not anchored, not tied to the dock, and it just starts to slowly drift away into the water. Maybe doesn't seem all that dangerous at first, but if you wait a few hours, your boat's going to be gone. And why is it so dangerous to drift away from the message of Jesus? Verse 2, For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, 
How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So in verses 2 and 3, the author is making a comparison between the law and between salvation. And what does he say about the law? He says that it's a message declared by the angels because the Jewish tradition and the common belief at this time was that God communicated the truths of the Old Testament to his people through the prophets by means of angels. So an angel came down on Mount Sinai and explained the law to Moses. And so the message declared by angels is the law. And the author says two things about this message, two things about the law. The first thing is that it's reliable. It's a true word from God. The message declared by the angels proved to be reliable. We saw this earlier in Hebrews in chapter 1. We sang it just a minute ago. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The Old Testament, along with all of the Bible, is not false. It's not optional. It's reliable. So count on it. Friends, the Old Testament is good. A lot of Christians are embarrassed by it. And they're like, yeah, just start with the Jesus stuff. Cut out everything else. But no, the Old Testament is good. It's a wonderful picture of God's mercy and grace. Christ did not come to erase the Old Testament as if it were outdated. Christ did not come to throw out the Old Testament. Christians have always held on to the Old Testament. And we need to as well. That's why so much of the book of Hebrews is just explaining and quoting the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is good. So friends, you need the Old Testament. You need it. Do you have any plans to actually read it this year? Maybe if you don't, maybe a simple habit that you could do is, in addition to whatever other Bible reading and Bible study you're doing this year, maybe you could just make a habit of reading the Old Testament for five minutes a day. If you read the Old Testament for five minutes a day, this year, I promise you that will bear incredible fruit for the rest of your life. You will know the Bible better and you will treasure it more dearly if you just read the Old Testament for five minutes a day. So the law is reliable. And the second thing he says about the law is that it must be obeyed. It's authoritative. So the message proved to be reliable, verse two continues, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So because the law is from God, when it's violated, there must be a punishment. And he describes our violation of the law as, as transgression. Transgression, similar to the word trespass, is like crossing over a boundary. God's law has built a boundary around what's right and what's wrong, and he's declared it to be true. And if we step over that boundary, out of the land of the right, into the land of the wrong, we're transgressors. We're breaking God's law. We've, we've gone beyond the boundaries of what's good. He describes it as transgression, and he describes it as disobeying. That's a refusal to hear the word of God, a refusal to submit to the law of God. And God's response is a just retribution. The word retribution means payback. And payback is a good thing, right? You go to work and you expect to receive payback for it, right? A salary. In the same way, that's a positive payback. Let's think about some negative, ne negative paybacks. If I were to punch one of you in the face... 
I would get a payback. Maybe you would punch me back. Maybe you'd call the police. Maybe I'd go to jail. I don't know. I would get a payback, though. And when you violate the law of God, you have to expect a payback for it. That's retribution. It's a key aspect of God's justice. And think about it. He says here that this retribution is just. It's good. It's right. Evil must be punished. It cannot be ignored. It cannot be ignored. And retribution is also good. Evil should be punished. We know that. We feel that. When we hear about heinous crimes being committed. This week even we had the, the, horrible, the horrible punishment of even seeing videos of crimes being committed all across our country. And that, that just raises up a rancor in us that we, we know that evil must be punished. The law is a big deal, and so abandoning it is a big deal, but salvation is an even bigger deal. And therefore, abandoning salvation leads to an even more certain punishment than abandoning the law. So verse, verse 3, if abandoning the law was so costly, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Jesus offers a great salvation, forgiveness of our sins, payment of your debt, freedom from your slavery. That's the great salvation that Jesus offers to you. It's a sure and certain future. You were an enemy of God, and because of Jesus, you will live with God as his friend forever. That's a great salvation. That's a great salvation. Salvation is greater than the law, not because it's more true, but because it's more climactic. Again, think about Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, we're coming to a climax. We're coming to a head. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Salvation is greater than the law in the sense that it's more final and more clear. And so neglecting leads to an even more certain punishment. In verses two, 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 2, he's making a greater to lesser argument. A greater to lesser argument. He's saying, if you neglect this little thing, you're going to be punished. How much more will you be punished if you neglect this much greater thing? If you punch a police officer, you will be punished. How much more will you be punished if you punch the president? And so he's giving you a warning. Don't let go of Jesus. Don't neglect this great salvation that he has purchased for us. And this is one of the key features in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is built around five warning passages. Five warnings where the author says, if you neglect Christ, there will be consequences. If you abandon Christ, there will be consequences. These warnings are addressed to Christians, warning them, do not let go. And so how do we understand these passages? How do we understand these warnings throughout the book of Hebrews? Let me give you two frameworks that you can hold on to as we continue to study Hebrews for the rest of this year. The first one, Christ will never let go of his people. 
So the first question that a lot of people ask when they come to these passages is, do these warnings mean that a Christian can lose their salvation? And in one sense, the answer is no. A Christian cannot lose their salvation. Not because our actions don't matter, but because our salvation wasn't based on anything that we've done. It's based on Christ, and he is holding on to us. He's promised that. John chapter 10, verse 27 to 29, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. It's a guarantee. Take it to the bank. FDIC insurance. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Christ is holding on to his people, and they will never be let go. That means that Christ will never give up on you in your weakness and in your shame and in your sin and your persistent rebellion. Christ is not giving up on you. And it also means that no other person can take you away. There is no weight of persecution. There is no suffering or rejection that can pull you away from Christ because he is holding on to you and no one is able to snatch you out of his hands. Christ will never let go of his people. Second reality, Christ's preservation of us does not in any way diminish our need to persevere. See that? Similar words. Don't miss it. Christ's preservation of us, he's holding on, does not in any way diminish our need to persevere. Hold on. It's a mutual holding on. Christ is a life preserver. He will always float, and he calls you, hold on to me. Don't let go of me. We have to hold on, and that's really hard because there is a lot of suffering in this world. There is a lot of temptation in this world. It's hard to hold on to Jesus, and that's why he's empowering us. That's why it's so important, why our only hope is that he is preserving us, and the way that he preserves us is by empowering us to persevere. It's like, imagine a life preserver again. Holding on to the life preserver. That is your only hope. If you let go, you're toast. And it's like Jesus is saying, don't let go. You got this. I've got you. I'm holding on. I'm not letting you go. He's empowering you to hold on. Not just with motivation, but actually helping you, strengthening you, training you. Christ's preservation of us does not in any way diminish our need to persevere. And this is illustrated by the fact that some people will walk away from Christ. And when people walk away from Christ, it does prove that they were never born again to begin with. 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, as in, as in people who abandoned Christ, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So in a sense they were in, in another sense they never were. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They would have persevered with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not all. They all are not of us. People who abandoned Christ proved that they were never really in the family to begin with. And I want to make very clear that this is not to negate any experience 
that ex-evangelicals have had or, or anybody who abandons Christ. This doesn't negate their experience. It's not to say that their commitment isn't genuine, but rather it's to say that Christianity is not primarily about something that you experience. It's not primarily about a commitment you make. It's not primarily about an action that you've done. It's about something that Christ has done inside of you. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is not to do Christian stuff and to buy Christian books and and to wear Christian t-shirts and to do the Christian events. To be a Christian means that God has changed you by giving you faith in his son who died in your place and rose again. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so if someone abandons Christ, it means they were never in to begin with. Maybe they had genuine, meaningful experiences in the church, but they were never born again. Some of you here today and people that often come to our gatherings Enjoy Christian things and enjoy Christian events. You even like coming here. I don't know why, but none of that is enough to save you. I do know why. This church is awesome. You're awesome. (laughs) And so people enjoy coming here, but that's not enough to save you. Coming to church will never get you into heaven. That's crazy. It's not enough. We need to trust in Jesus. So don't just come and hear preaching and don't just go to Bible study. Don't just participate in those things. Trust Jesus. There are people that regularly come to events in our church and they're starving to death in a grocery store. They need to open their mouth and trust Jesus. Receive him. And at the same time, to those of you who have been born again, the message of Hebrews to you is, Don't let go. Don't let go. Persevere, knowing that Christ himself is preserving you. So what about these warnings? God will keep his people, and warnings are one of the ways that he will keep his people. So if I said to you, if we went and hung out on Pennsylvania, and you started running into traffic, I would say to you, Don't run into traffic because I don't want you to die. That doesn't mean that if you run out into traffic, you will certainly die. I'm giving you a warning to protect you from unnecessary danger. So these warnings are genuine warnings. The message of Jesus is necessary. You need to believe it. You need to keep believing it. You need to believe that he's your only hope in life and death. Not your own goodness, not your church activity, not your religious affiliations. Your only hope is that Jesus is a savior, that he's risen for you. So hold on to him, trust him. Friends, heed these warnings, persevere. What does that look like? Let me give you three ideas, what it looks like to persevere, following Christ, holding on to Christ. Number one, Feast on Christ. Feast on him. Spiritual disciplines like prayer and reading the Bible are a means to an end. They're supposed to lead you to Christ. And so don't just read your Bible because you got to check the boxes on your plan and you get really stressed out if you're behind. Read the Bible because Jesus is there. 
And he's showing you to himself there. Feast on Christ. Don't just go through the motions. Feast on him. Love him. I don't feel that way. Maybe you, say, maybe you think that. I don't feel that way. Like, I believe in Jesus. I don't feel that way. I, he's not wonderful to me. It doesn't feel like a feast. It feels like a famine. It feels like a free sample at Costco. Hold on to him, friends, in those moments. And discipline yourself to read the word and to pray. Not because, not because your, your struggle isn't real or isn't hard, but because the way that you'll grow your love for Jesus is by spending time with him. So feast on him, friends. Feast on Christ. Second thing, focus on your present mindset, not your past activity. A lot of people get really worked up thinking about when they were converted and when they came to Christ and wondering if it was true. And like, oh, was I really a Christian when I walked the aisle? Was I really a Christian when I checked the box? Was I really saved back then? And friends, that is dangerous because it puts your hope in you and something that you've done rather than Christ and what he has done, died and risen for you. Knowing the date of your conversion is absolutely worthless information. What you need to know is not when you were converted, but if you're now converted. So don't look at your, don't look at your past activity as the grounds of your hope. That will never last. You'll always have something to question. You'll always have sin that came after your conversion that you'll wonder like, oh man, was it genuine? Was it real? Was it later? I don't know, but are you converted now? Ask questions like, are you currently trusting in Christ? Do you really believe today that he's your only hope? Do you really believe that today, that he is your only hope? Are you currently walking in repentance, turning away from sin? Repentance doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that you have serious sorrow about your sin and serious striving against your sin. Are you walking in repentance today? Feast on Christ. Focus on your present mindset, not your past activity and fiercely crush anything that pulls your heart away from Christ. Sin will kill you, so cut it out of your life. One of my favorite quotes is John Piper said, God is not a killjoy. He's opposed to that which kills joy. God is not... God's commands are not a straitjacket to keep you from having fun. They're signposts telling you that life is that way. Go that way. There's death over there. Don't go over there. That's rat poisoning. Don't drink it. Fiercely crush anything that pulls your heart away from Christ. And in this way, obedience to God does not earn his love, but it is evidence that he is yours, that you are his. 1 John 2, 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Feast on Christ. Focus on your present mindset, not your past activity, and fiercely crush anything that pulls your heart away from Christ. 
The message of Jesus is necessary. And the second thing that I want you to know is that the message of Jesus is trustworthy. So why should you hold on to Jesus? In one reason, because there's a lot of evidence pointing to it. God is not calling you to blindly follow. He's calling you to hold on to a reasonable faith. And I believe that. I believe Christianity is defensible. It's true. We don't have to be scared or run from questions. And in verses 3 and 4, the author describes three witnesses to the message of Jesus. Three pieces of evidence. If this were a trial, the author of Hebrews would call three witnesses to the stand. The first witness to this message about Jesus, the first witness of this great salvation that Jesus has accomplished. First one, Jesus himself. He says in verse three, it was declared at first by the Lord. This salvation was declared at first by the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus has been calling people to find true life in himself. The second witness is the apostles and the earliest eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. So it was declared, this salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us, the earliest Christians, by those who heard. The miracles and the ministry and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of Jesus have, a, have an abundance of witnesses. Again, God is not calling you to blindly follow. He's asking you, he's calling you to hold on to a reasonable faith. People will tell you today, no one saw Jesus after he died. Like that's just, that's all a myth. That's just religious fantasy. All 12 of his disciples saw him and more than 500 witnesses saw the risen Lord Jesus. And the earliest writings about his life, the four gospels, were written while those witnesses were still alive, most of them by eyewitnesses. And so if they were just blowing smoke about who Jesus is, then those eyewitnesses would stand up and be like, dude, I was there, that's not true. There's no way that the Gospels would have stood the test of a few minutes, let alone the test of time. Three witnesses to this great salvation, Jesus himself, the apostles and the eyewitnesses, and the third witness is God. Verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. How is God bearing witness? Through miracles. God will do some amazing things and he's done some amazing things. But also by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 tell us, the gifts of the Holy Spirit have been distributed. They certainly have, and they've been distributed to every Christian. So if you're a Christian, that means that God has uniquely gifted you to serve him. God himself is bearing witness to the great salvation in Jesus through you. That's why he's gifted you. 
You are God's instrument, uniquely gifted, not only to proclaim salvation to a lost and dying world around us, but also to proclaim this great salvation to the church that we are a part of. That's wonderful. You, friends, are God's instrument to keep the rest of this church holding on. We couldn't do it on our own. I met a bunch of people this week who told me that they don't need to come to church because I, they already go to church. And I said, oh, cool, interesting. Where do you go to church? And they say, right here, me, I'm the church. I'm like, that's fine. You need somebody to hold on to you. You need somebody to watch your back. And that's you, friends. You have a responsibility, especially if you're a member of this church of this church, of this body, you have a responsibility to keep a watch over one another, to keep one another. Are you your brother's keeper? Yes. Are you doing that job faithfully? And this message is trustworthy. There's three witnesses. You really can depend on it. Christ purchased it and he's not going back on it. When I was in college, I worked at Macy's, seasonal job at Macy's, horrible, 10 out of 10 would not recommend. Uh, it was a seasonal job, it was like three months, I quit early. Uh, I was like, man, I guess it's just like, the schedule's not working, I guess I'm just done, bye, and then just stop coming. Um, one time at Macy's, there was this lady that bought a panini maker and one of the other clerks put it on hold for her, but that other clerk wrote down that she hadn't paid for it. And so this lady comes back to Macy's looking for her panini maker, and she just like loses her mind, screaming at people like, where's the panini maker? And she's like digging through her purse trying to find the receipt. And like, she's just like screaming at us. She's melting down in the middle of Macy's. And we're all like, oh man, this is really weird. But in a way it makes sense. Like, I can sympathize with her because she paid for it. It's hers. She's not going to just let go of it. Jesus has purchased you, friends. He's not just going to let go of you. His message is trustworthy. You can hold on to him because he is holding on to you. And that doesn't mean it's easy. It's really hard to trust Jesus today because there's a lot of confusing experiences around us. There's a lot of direct assaults coming at us. Today, a lot of people praise and celebrate the idea of, of deconstruction, which is the idea of redefining your faith by abandoning beliefs that you can't hold anymore rather than positively constructing your faith around the truth. Deconstruction, that's why it's called deconstruction, is about subtraction, not addition. And our goal, friends, is to ask questions, but to ask those questions in faith. A lot of people describe the experiences that prompted their deconstruction as cognitive, cognitive dissonance, as what they believed and what they've been told to believe just didn't square with what they saw in the world around them what they saw in Christians. And our goal is not to dismiss those questions, but to ask those questions from a posture of faith. So how do you do that? How do you ask questions without abandoning Jesus? 
three things. Number one, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's a whole lot of bathwater and our faith is not pure. People say that they abandoned the church because they saw Christians who were nothing like Christ. And that's true of me. I know that I'm often failing to be like Jesus, to live like Jesus. Often, we have beliefs that are more defined by our culture and our subculture than by the word of God. Those beliefs need to be cast aside because they're not true. But just because one thing isn't true doesn't mean everything's not true. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Last year, there was, a, there was a really big deconstruction story. Rhett and Link shared their deconstruction story online. And if you listened to it, they seemed like they had a lot of reasonable arguments. But at the core of it, what one of them said was, I came to the conclusion I couldn't believe that God created the world in seven days. And then everything else fell apart. He decided that one belief wasn't true, and so he just threw everything else out. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater because our faith isn't pure yet. Second thing, don't abandon the Bible. Our faith is flawed because it's infected by culture and opinions and feelings. The Bible's not. The Bible's pure, so hang on to it. God's word makes all these murky things clear again. And some of you are saying, well, I can't trust the Bible. Well, A, I think the Bible is trustworthy. The other thing I want you to know, and this is a tool you can use in evangelism, when people tell you, I can't trust the Bible. Friends, every ultimate truth claim begins with a leap of faith. Even if you're just trusting your own perception of reality, you're making the leap of faith that your perception of reality is trustworthy. Every ultimate truth claim starts with a leap of faith. And so I'm asking you to take a leap of faith and trust the Bible. But at the same time, that is not a call to just stop thinking, to believe the Bible willy-nilly. It's a call to know the good reasons that the Bible is trustworthy. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't abandon the Bible and don't abandon the church. Remember in 2.4, one of the ways that God is witnessing to this salvation, one of the ways that God is holding on to you is through the church. He's given gifts to the church in order to hold on to you. That's the point of 2.4, Hebrews 2.4. God is witnessing to the reality of Christ to you through the church. And so don't abandon it. Don't just read some stuff online and be like, well, I guess it's all fake. I'm just going to leave pillar behind. I'm going to leave the church behind. Walk through these things in community. Friends, I long for this to be a safe place for doubts to be raised and questions to be asked and to be heard respectfully and clearly and gently so what does that look like? You take this command in Hebrews 2, 4, seriously. You believe that God is going to use you to hold on to the other Christians in this room. What does it look like to hear questions? Three things, four things actually. Bonus. Number one, don't dismiss, don't dismiss questions. Questions are not bad and they should not be dismissed. Often we're tempted when we hear a question about God that we don't know the answer to, we're tempted to just kind of avoid those questions 
saying like, oh, you know, we really can't know that. Or, or, you know, you really shouldn't think like that. Sometimes we even baptize that and we say like, God moves in mysterious ways. Friends, that thinking is lazy because it assumes that questions come from a posture of not a real Christian or trying to justify sin or having some ulterior motive. And dismissing people's questions like that doesn't make God look big and mysterious. It makes him look small and indefensible. So don't dismiss questions. They're not bad and there are answers. Second thing, when somebody comes to you with a question or a doubt, don't fake it. You don't know all the answers. You don't know all the answers to the questions that people will ask you about God. And that's okay, because he's bigger than you are. He's bigger than you are. You shouldn't expect to know all the answers. When someone asks you a question or shares a doubt with you that you don't know the answer to, don't fake it. Don't shoot from the hip. Say something like, I don't know, but let's find out together. And now instead of propping yourself up in pride, hiding the fact that you don't know, you get to go on an exciting journey through God's word with another people that where he will use you and his word to, per to preserve someone. That's cool. That's better than people thinking you have all the answers. Don't dismiss questions. Don't fake it. Don't be condescending when people share questions or doubts with you. Because just because you don't have a hard time believing something doesn't mean that everyone else finds it as easy. A, a very easy example of this is homosexuality. The Bible is very clear that homosexuality is a sin. I don't want to brush that aside. I don't want to belittle that command at all. And we need to be clear about the Bible. But at the same time, for some of you, the idea of homosexuality is a very abstract theoretical idea. And for others of you in this room, that's a very personal and murky issue. Not because God's word isn't clear, but because you have intense experiences of temptation and struggle in your own life. And so when somebody asks you a question or shares a doubt about an issue like homosexuality, and you respond by being harsh and ranting about who knows what in the news, that's not helpful. That's not helpful. It's condescending. Instead, be like Jesus. Meet people where they are. Be clear. Hold firm God's commands. And gently guide people to the truth. John chapter 1 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He never compromised on the truth. And he also never compromised on his attitude. He was never impatient with people who didn't have it all figured out. And friends, that is good news because that's me. I don't have it all figured out. I'm going to invite the music team up uh, and share one more thing. What do you do when, you ask, when people ask you questions? You dive into God's word, not your own opinions. Your experience might be useful. It's not ultimate. We want people to have God's word to answer their questions and doubts. We don't just want to replace their cultural presuppositions with another set of cultural presuppositions. We want them to know God. We want them to know the word. 
We want them to know Jesus died for their sins and risen today. Friends, Christ has come to secure a better future for you, which is friendship with God himself. Believe that. Trust him. Don't accept any substitutes. And don't abandon him. Don't let go. There is no question too big that it cannot be answered definitively by a God who has conquered death itself. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy. I pray that we would receive this word with thankfulness today and that we would hold on to you because you are trustworthy. God, we thank you for the promise that you will not let us go. It's for your name we pray.